Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. And we pray this morning that the mystery of joy will come into every heart through the miracle of the transformed life. We love you, Lord. Amen. Well, the most important announcement got forgotten. Uh, back on the back, if you don't, and this morning there's going to be some stuff that you probably will want actually to fill in the blanks. So uh, they're at the back of the aisles there if you need to get uh, your outline. Luke chapter 2. Here's the word. And in the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. Could you bring it down some, please? And the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring good news of great joy. Notice that. Great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, There has been born for you a Savior, notice, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Notice from the text and what we sang this morning, great joy, a Savior, great joy, salvation. Why did God come to earth? To save the world. And what does this bring? Great joy. Now, throughout all of biblical history, this was not a new announcement. Salvation and joy have always been linked in the text. They go together. Look with me at just a few passages that make this point. It'll be on the screen. Look from Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Notice the linkage. Psalm 118, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. And look at the response. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Can you bring it down some, please? And look at the famous words of King David as he uh, repented of his sin and prayed for restoration of his relationship with God. You may be familiar with this from Psalm 51. Look at this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And these incredibly famous words, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Throughout Scripture, salvation is indelibly linked to joy. But if this is true... If this is true, when you look around the church in our country, it leads to an obvious question. Here's your first blanks in your outline. Look at this. Why do so many people who claim to be saved seem to be missing the joy? Why do so many Christians find joy in the things of the world, but so little joy in their relationship with God? Why does Barna find now three decades running that when you look at the core values, that which people make their decisions upon in their life, that the top six 
in American Christians and American, uh, in, in Americans who have no faith at all, the top six are exactly the same, with the number one being material well-being. The top of our anticipation list isn't Jesus. It's getting what I want. Why? Why are so many believers expressing so little vibrancy in their walk with Christ? And why is there such a lack of overflowing delight, the joy of our salvation? Now, this morning, we're going to work on answering these questions, and we'll begin with a key concept. Ready? Write it in. This is really important to understand, and I'm going to unpack it this morning. The reason, here's your blank, so many Christians live with so little joy is because they've experienced religion but they haven't actually experienced the gospel. Now, this may sound crazy. Let's back up. If you paid any attention to American history, the history of our country has been filled with what has been assumed to be the gospel. Think about this. There are a half a million churches dispersed across our nation, and we've enjoyed a quarter of a millennium of unencumbered freedom to declare the word of God. Press it further. Our airwaves provide access to the Christian message 24-7 in every corner of our land. And even the recent decline in religious affiliation hasn't dropped the number of people who call themselves Christians below 100 million people in our country. And you know those people say? They believe the gospel. So... If joy is an expression of salvation, where is it? Where is it in a society with so many people who say they're saved? Well, the answer may not be simple. In fact, it's probably complex. But here's what is at the core of this issue. Many people have experienced the, Christ, the religion of Christianity, but not real Christianity. And this is because when you conflate, listen, when you conflate religion the religion of Christianity with the gospel, you don't actually have the gospel. And this morning, we're gonna see that what's available on every street corner in our country is often not the gospel, but religion masquerading as the gospel. And to understand this, we need to unpack the worldviews that exist in our culture, that dis and then we'll see how it distinguishes uh, this from the gospel. Okay, ready? There are, there are three possible worldviews. Here's your blanks. Number one, this is how the three ways to understand within the world with, to understand the history uh, and humanity. Ready? Number one, the religious worldview, and I've, uh, up here I think I've given you the definition. Look, at, here's, a, here's a good definition of the religious worldview. The belief in a reality that be exists beyond the natural world and a moral order which one must attempt to obey. So notice, religion is not the same as belief in God. Buddhists don't believe in a personal God. They're functionally atheists, okay? But this takes in every religious worldview, that there's something beyond the natural and that there's a moral order that we must obey. Nearly every society from antiquity has believed in the supernatural and they've believed in objective moral reality. And they've also believed that you must try to conform to that morality. Every society has always said, you should be good and you should not be 
bad. That's, ready, religion. It's the attempt to be good to make God or the gods happy by what I do. Religion. The second worldview, ready, the irreligious. Two R's, the irreligious or the non-religious or the materialist worldview. And this is what materialist means here. This has no, nothing to do, or it's only indirectly, but it has nothing for the moment to do with materialism in the, in the economic sense, ready? The materialist believes that all that exists is, you ready? Matter, energy, and random purposeless forces. Nothing else exists. So the non-religious person, if they're truly non-religious, believes that there's nothing beyond the natural, so not only is there no God, but there's no spiritual reality of any kind. So ready? Love, hope, beauty, joy. Every one of those things is actually an illusion. They're merely biochemical reactions in the brain. All of reality is the sum total of, ready, physics and chemistry. And so therefore, there is no ultimate meaning, there is no ultimate purpose. All beyond the natural is an illusion. So, really interesting. The religious view and the non-religious, these two views, most people believe that these are the two overarching worldviews. They're not the only ones. True Christianity is not a subset of religion. We're gonna see why. It's actually a third and entirely unique category of understanding all of history, everything about humanity, and everything about reality. The third worldview is, you ready? Write it in. The third worldview is the gospel. The third worldview is the gospel. And look at this, it's fairly long, so I'll read it together with us twice. Look at this. The belief that no amount of moral effort can bridge the chasm between God and humanity. But the price for setting things right has been paid for everyone through the blood of Christ and that all one must do to receive this benefit is to receive the gift, the gift, the gift of forgiveness. Notice, by sheer grace. Not religion, the gospel. The belief that no amount of moral effort can bridge the chasm between God and humanity, but that the price for setting things right has been paid for everyone through the blood of Christ and that all one must do to receive the benefit is to accept the gift of forgiveness by sheer grace. So this explains something that many Christians don't seem to grasp. At its essence, Christianity is not a religion. It's neither religion nor non-religion. It's neither religion nor materialism or, non, or irreligion. It's, it's neither of those, ready? It is in fact altogether different. In fact, are you aware that at the founding of Christianity, the early Christians were looked on by the Romans and do you know what the Romans called them? Atheists. Why? No temple, no things to like go sacrifice to, no gods to set up, no whatever. They looked and they tried to find a category of religion to put Christians in and they said, 
Well, they don't have gods. They don't have temples. They don't, they're atheists. They don't believe in the gods. How amazing the Romans understood this is something altogether brand new. So this morning, I'm gonna try to explain just one aspect of the uniqueness of the gospel, and I believe this will help us understand why so many people who claim to be Christians have failed to receive the joy of their salvation. Now, to understand the differences between the worldviews, you have to understand an important theological term, and you're gonna see in a minute how ironic this is. In order to understand the first two worldviews, you have to understand the theological term of legalism. And here's your blanks to write in a good functioning term, legalism. You ready? The belief that a person's actions make them morally acceptable or unacceptable. Legalism. The belief that a person's actions make them morally acceptable or unacceptable. And from this perspective, let's look at the three alternative worldviews. Religion, non-religion, and the gospel. Ready? Let's look at them and see which one, ones represent a legalistic framework. It turns out that two of the three worldviews are legalistic, but <laughs> this is really, really strange. It's easy to see how religion is legalistic, right? That's the whole point. There's a supernatural or, uh, a moral order and you better obey it or the gods are mad. Legalism. But what I do and what I believe and what I say is what makes me acceptable or unacceptable to the gods. But the second legalistic one may blow your mind. You ready? The other legalistic worldview is ironically non-religion. Now stick with me. How could this be? How could the non-religious worldview be legalistic? Well, <laughs> you just have to look at the definition of legalism again. It's the belief that a person's actions made them morally acceptable or unacceptable. Okay, that's, the, that's, the le that's what legalism, and this clears up a common misunderstanding. Did you know that despite ourselves, even the atheist, all humans have a deeply embedded desire to be right? to be morally superior. And this is true even if they're entirely non-religious. That's right, even non-religious people are desperate to be right, desperate to be right. And these desperate, uh, they're desperate to believe that their way of living and their way of viewing the world is better than people who believe differently than them. You know what that is? Despite them, they're not really non-religious. Every human fundamentally is looking for godness, either in the right place or the wrong places. So ironically, the non-religious person, have you, have you ever been around atheists who spend a lot of time telling you what they do so that you'll realize that they're a good atheist? Everyone needs to be right. And so notice, if you wanna see this play out in real time, all you have to do is look at social media or take your pick, listen to a news pundit or read an op-ed in the paper. You can't find any of those nowadays that aren't loaded with moral language. Ready? 
These talking heads don't just say that they disagree with their opponents. You know what they say? They say their opponents are morally reprehensible. Just turn on the news. In fact, you ready? Have you ever heard the term fascist used more than it is right now? Think about it. And who's using it? Both sides. Isn't it amazing? And notice, this isn't just a disagreement. This name-calling is making the point that their opponent is what? Evil. Isn't it strange to hear someone who says they don't believe in the supernatural and in a moral order because there's nothing beyond chemistry and physics, it's all just going on up here and out there? Notice how much they call others evil. So this is amazing. It's not just religious people using this language. Both sides, religious and non-religious, are deeply believe in right and wrong. And when they debate about what should and shouldn't be done, think about it. They both believe that their view is morally superior to the other view. <laughs> Explode non-religion. It's been exposed. They believe deeply in right or wrong and a moral order that they determine what's right and wrong from. So let me give an example. I've spent my career on the faculty of a university that's entirely non-religious. It's a public university. And are you ready for a big surprise? A big surprise to me was <laughs> that in this bastion of secular, secular, non-religious, materialist, intellectual pursuit, guess what? There are creeds and beliefs that are avidly held to with every bit as much fervor as any religious sect I've ever studied. So if you break the creeds, guess what? If you step out, step out of line, you're disciplined and you may be, you ready? You may be, they call it fired, but you know what it is? Excommunicated. Because when you get fired for what you believe, that's excommunication. That's, in a, that's a religious event. You believe that? You're gone, folks. That's called shunning. That's not called firing, but HR has to use other terms, right? So notice this. In my professional setting, I frequently hear people call the views of others immoral. So as strange as it seems, even settings that are strictly secular have rigid codes of thought and behavior that identify a person as good or bad. And guess what? If you break the rules of the club, you're out. You know what that is? Legalism to its core. Isn't it ironic? So this exposes a great paradox, ready? Here's your blanks, the, both the religious and non-religious people are intensely legalistic and morally focused. And this leads to a great surprise. I know, isn't this like blowing your mind? This leads to a great surprise. Irreligious people, here's your blank. Irreligious people are just as judgmental of those who don't agree with their beliefs as religious people are. Isn't that interesting? Non-religious people cancel as many people as religious people do. It's all around. So notice this. Both systems make value judgments based on their own constructs of right and wrong. Both are on a mission to be morally acceptable, to be right, to be good by whatever set of standard they espouse. And without fail, every one of them uses their standards to evaluate and judge whether others 
are good or evil. And you know what that's called? Legalism. Both in religious and non-religious settings of our society, it's literally everywhere. So, we come to a key concept. The two fundamental options are not religious versus non-religious. Ready? Okay, let this sink in. Because the non-religious people are every bit as legalistic as the religious people. Because what I do determines whether I'm good or bad. And how I judge other people is based upon what's right and wrong. So, Think about it, there it is. The two fundamental philosophical options are not religious versus non-religious, you ready? They're, here's the options. Moral effort or the gospel. Oh, for the freedom and the joy of the real gospel. You see, humanity has an irrevocably moral understanding of life. Every worldview other than the gospel has no choice but to claim moral superiority over the others. Both religious and non-religious people, you ready? They're on a self-salvation plan. How ironic that I'm surrounded at the university by people who say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the supernatural. Everything that's beyond uh, physics is just, uh, is is literally nothing other than an illusion. And, and, And by the way, I'm good. And look what all I do. And I give to, I'll let you know the charities that I give to because I'm good, isn't it amazing? We can't get away from this. So the reality is, everyone is on a self-salvation plan. You ready? Everyone is trying to be saved, even if they never go to a religious event in their life. Everybody's trying to be saved by being good. So, I do this. I don't do that, I'm good. I'm morally superior to those different from me. So, this is what's so ironic when Christianity becomes legalistic. Listen, church, listen. When this happens, a Christian has left the gospel and has joined everyone else in the world. When my righteousness ever comes from what I do, or how I think, or my superior beliefs. If my righteousness ever comes from there, I have left the gospel of Jesus Christ and have joined, ironically, you might as well come to my public university because you've joined the fight to be good as opposed to everybody else's evil who's different than me. You've literally left the gospel. So, in the church, this discussion highlights what a calamity it is when people misunderstand Christianity as being the best religion with the best teacher and the best people who make themselves good by following the best moral code because, after all, Jesus has the best moral code. This produces a staggering legalism. Remember what legalism is. It's believing that my actions make me acceptable or unacceptable. And so, if I believe my moral code is the best, then it feeds directly into my belief that I'm better than those who believe differently than me. So listen, especially if you've grown up in a legalistic home, if you've grown up in a home where, you're, where the love from one or both of the parents was based upon your performance, 
right? Good, are you good enough? Or if you've come from a tradition where the effort to be good is really emphasized, here's the real gospel, let's look at it together. I think it'll be on the screen. The real gospel as opposed to the religion of Christianity. I can never make myself good by following rules. My good works will never make me morally superior to anyone and there's no action that I can take that will make me acceptable to God. But in Jesus, through his atonement and through repentance, God paid for my sin and you're ready? He clothes me in the righteousness of Christ. Some of us, if we were honest, when we were singing joy to the world this morning and we came to that verse, we would say, the glories of our righteousness, oh, excuse me, the glories of his righteousness. See, the, the glories of our righteousness is what lots of religious Christians are doing, trying to be good, trying to be good, trying to be good, trying to be righteous, trying to make themselves Christ-like. So look at this. I lay down all claim to goodness. I lay down all pretense of merit in myself, and I stand humbly before a perfectly righteous Savior who alone can take away my sin. Oh, what a relief. And if I ever do anything truly good, it'll only be because of God's image and grace working in me. It will only be because of Jesus' holiness being gifted to me through the Holy Spirit's work in my life. The gospel, the real thing, so notice, this entire understanding is an absolute contrast to the religious and irreligious views because the gospel asserts that human effort is never the source of goodness. Rather, all goodness is derived from, ready, from someone else. This is exactly what the apostle Paul taught in the kingpin passage in Galatians 2.20. Here it is, ready? For I am crucified with Christ, and you ready? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And ready? He doesn't kill me like stop breathing kill me. He kills that inner selfishness and gets me out of the way. So the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and offered himself up for me. Listen, here's the gospel. I'm not gonna compare myself to anyone I'm not gonna call other people fascists because I'm crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. I was that until I started living life transformed by Christ. That's what I would be, religious or unreligious, Pharisee or in jail. It wouldn't matter. That's the life I would be. So listen, all holiness comes from the Holy One. It's all derived, folks. As the prophet Isaiah said, my righteousness is as filthy rags. But if I'll allow it, God will grant his righteousness so that Christ can live within me and through me. Notice what I do. Philippians 3, I take all of my works, all of my holiness, all of my effort, and I put every bit of it on a pile of refuse, on a pile of, the text says, dung, excrement. <laughs> All my righteousness goes on the big rubbish pile so that I may receive the righteousness that comes alone by grace through faith. 
There is no other way for a human to be good except when the human gets out of the way and Christ lives through them. Now, let me stop for a moment to clarify something. Don't for a minute. If you need Romans 5 and 6, go read the end of Romans 5. Hey, this is great. What a great gospel. Shall we, since grace is almost infinite, and maybe even infinite, shall, since grace will, shall we sin all the more that grace may abound, may the grace may increase? Whoa, the more I sin, the more grace this is. This is a great religion. God loves to forgive and I love to sin. We got a great thing going. And Paul completely destroys that concept with a word that can't even be translated, translated which said, can you turn, the, turn it way down for a second? that basically we, we pathetically use like may it never be exclamation point. It's more like bah! You can't say it in English. And you know what he then says is, if we'll die, we'll be freed from sin. I'm crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. Don't look at me. I'm not better than them. At the worst, I'm not better than them. So, oh man, listen to this. This is so beautifully, beautifully given to us in one of the old hymns. Look at the, look at the words, not my own righteousness. This hymnal, hymn writer got it. Not my own righteousness, but Christ within, living and reigning and saving from sin. Not mine. Now, let's compare this to the common belief in the church. Many of us think that what's wrong with the world is all those sinners out there but what we've completely missed is that until we lay down every pretense of our being good and fall as beggars before the mercy of the righteous king, guess what? We're on the same, same hopeless self-salvation project as the rest of the world. In fact, it's worse for us because we're supposed to be like Christ and he's perfect. I mean, what a lousy religion. My religion is, oh, you just gotta be like Jesus. Oh my goodness. Think about that. Let's choose something. I mean, my goodness, let's choose crime, right? A little bit of a lower standard. I can do that, can't you? Okay, so, so look at this. Here's where the gospel is entirely unique. The gospel doesn't just require us to surrender our sins. It requires us to surrender our righteousness as well. Oh, my would that that's preached all over this country to transform a nation with Christians who think they're better than those people out there. Oh, Lord, help us. See, if this isn't understood, then a Christian ends up being just like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. Guess who got restored back to be with the father? The prostitute sleeping, you know, pig slopping younger brother at the end of the story, he's having a party with the father. And guess who's not? The one who said, Father, I've always done everything you told me to do. And he's out of fellowship with the father, not because of his sin, but because of his righteousness. Oh, Lord, help us. That's what separates him. So here's, here's, uh, here's your blank. A poignant message for the church. I'll read it twice because there's too many blanks, sorry. Uh, it's a disaster when religious Christianity is mistaken for the gospel. Oh, listen, church. Because it ends up being a horrible mix of legalism, 
judgmentalism and self-righteousness. Let me say that again. It's a disaster when religious Christianity is mistaken for the gospel because it ends up being a horrible mix of legalism, judgmentalism, and self-righteousness. And tragically, guess what? Those sinners out there who are looking for truth and grace, guess what? Religious Christianity is unbelievably unappealing to them. Because all it is is the same self-salvation project they've always been trying to do, but now the standards become impossible. I mean, what a lousy religion to offer people who are looking for truth and grace. Oh, help us, Lord, to preach the real gospel. You see, the non-religious are looking for a way out of their self-salvation project, but often when they come to church or they interact with a Christian, guess what they get offered? they get offered a new moral improvement plan with new rules. So guess what's happening to our society now? Most of them say, no thank you, I like my rules better. All you're doing is replacing your rules with my rules. Friends, that's not the gospel. It's religion and it damns people as much as being a fascist. Help us, Lord. So now, let's look at where we've come. Whether religious or non-religious, every attempt to be good through human effort is a self-salvation project. Every claim that I can be good through what I do is an announcement, ready? It's an announcement that I'm not lost. I don't need a savior. It's an announcement that Jesus didn't need to die for me. Why? Because I can be good through what I do. So I don't need Jesus. I don't need a savior. Why were the Pharisees the greatest of sinners? Because spiritual pride is the high sin. I don't need Jesus to die for me because I'm being a good Christian. But here's what the word teaches. With true biblical faith, we don't reach God by working hard. You know what we do? We lay down all moral improvement plans and we willingly receive the miracle of a transformed life through the merits of Christ alone, the gospel. So let me explain how understanding the gospel has helped me in my work. I've really, God has blessed me and I have flourished at a public university for more than three decades. It's amazing in today's environment. Some people come to me and they say, well, I've heard your teaching and your preaching and stuff. How in the world can you be at a secular university? I mean, a secular university, what? How can the world, can you be that? You know what? I love it. I enjoy it. In fact, understanding the gospel has allowed me to be friends with everyone in this divided society. You ready? It's allowed me to have no enemies in, of all places, academia. I mean, academia, you ready? It's the place, it is the place. Are you ready for a definition of academia? I know, I'm a tenured, endowed professor. I've been there for, for more than 30 years, you ready? This is, a, this is a good way to think of academia. I'm enjoying working with people in the midst of arrogance and competitiveness and gigantic intellectual egos. And here's what God's done for me. I've been able to enjoy working with people of every possible lifestyle and belief system, and the reason is I've never been there on a moral improvement mission. 
I've never been trying to get them to trade their morality for my morality. I've always viewed every colleague as a person, by the way, this is biblical, made in the image of God, and for whom Jesus died. And as the, you know what this does? This allows me to bring the self-deferring, other-regarding love of Christ to them, no matter what they believe, how they live, and you're ready, no matter how they vote. What a concept that the gospel cuts through all of that division and says, I'm saved by grace. And you know what? I'm a fourth generation Nazarene, so this is a bummer. It's not a choice. It's like genetic for me, okay? And so... So I'm from a holiness tradition. You know what my default sin is? Spiritual pride. Oh, just the cancer of all sins. Oh, Lord, help us. So here's the key. Because of the gospel, that's my only hope at the university. I also have the only hope for anyone else that I meet. And I never forget that. I don't have a new list of rules for them. I have a savior. And he has paid all the price for them too. And with this kind of radical hope of the gospel, I've been able to lead colleagues to Christ. And even now, you ready? I'm in deep ongoing conversations with two former atheists. And you know what we're reading together? The Bible and Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis and The Reason for God by Timothy Keller and, and The Problem of Pain, uh, a masterful work by C.S. Lewis. And you ready for this? One of those former atheists who's gone to deism and, and then, and, well, kind of, no, agnosticism and then to deism, right, that, that God's out there somewhere but he's not personal and for to, to theism, uh, and you know what, he called me up a couple of months ago and he said, hey Dan, I just bought a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, but the reason I'm calling is before I open it and, and can't send it back anymore, I wanted you to check out the author and the editor to make sure I don't get led astray. You know what? When I went to U of A, I remembered that one of the names for God is friend of sinners. They're my friends. Listen, church, I love them as much as I love you because not my own righteousness, but Christ within living and reigning and saving from sin. I have nothing to offer them except a beggar's hope of mercy. Help us, Lord, to know the real gospel. See, the beauty of the gospel is the enormous relief it brings by freeing a person from being driven by what you think about yourself and how you stack up against other people. It frees us from demonizing people who don't live and believe like we do. True freedom comes when our need for self-justification is replaced by knowing that our standing before God doesn't come from our efforts. It comes from the perfection of the one whose blood covers our sin. You see, this releases us from all comparisons. It allows us to view others with grace and it relieves us from the need to feel morally superior to anyone and it probably calls for some news program that's new that would never, that it would never make it, right? Because it's the division. It's the division that they make money out of. 
You see, nobody is thinking like this except the true Christian. So let me summarize what we've learned. Here's the two conclusions. Conclusion number one. You ready? This is truly ironic. Only the lost can be saved. Say what? That's right. Only the lost can be saved. This is a great irony. You ready? The irony is that good people have missed this. You probably are familiar with the one, one of the most well-known gospel passages that comes directly from Jesus. I have come to seek and to save. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. So listen carefully, especially if you've been on some religious moral treadmill or you come to church not because it brings joy and you want to be with the body and you want to be discipled and you want to become like Jesus, but because you know, you know, that's what good Christians do is they, they go to church. Listen, listen um, this is why Jesus can, uh, can't help people who recognize themselves, don't recognize themselves as sinners in need of a savior. See, the only people who can receive forgiveness are those who know they need to be forgiven. You see, Jesus didn't come for people who think they're good. Listen, good people aren't Jesus' audience. The physician didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. See, Jesus didn't come for people who think they're good. In fact, people who think they're good have removed themselves from the space where Jesus works. But the great news is, when a person finally lays down their own attempts to be good enough, and they finally admit that they're not just mistreated or misguided or a victim or unfortunate, but they finally admit that they're actually lost, then they've joined the group of people who Jesus came for. That's who Jesus came for, the lost. So this morning, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, will you just admit it? Just admit it. No, going to church isn't enough. Getting baptized isn't enough. Paying stuff to charity, it's not enough. It's, it will be a response of true, of true transformation. But it's just, it's just not enough. Just, just this morning, if you haven't, surrendered your life to Jesus, just admit it, you're lost. Because if you don't think you're lost, guess what? Jesus can't help you. Because you've removed yourself from the group of people that Jesus came for, all of us who are lost. And conclusion number two this morning, the moral demands of religion will crush you. Listen, church, the moral demands of religion will crush you and steal your joy. Guess how this is coming back together now? So many saved with so little joy? Whoa, here's the big problem with religious Christianity. Folks, it's a miserable life because no matter how hard we try to be good, we know we never do enough because the standard is Jesus and Jesus is perfect. We're without hope, folks, if we're trying to reach Jesus by what we do. See, the moral treadmill is a horrible life. You can't really have, you know, you're not supposed to say this in church, but this flows right out of, the, right out of what the theology that we've developed this morning. You ready? You can't really have the fun of living in sin because it makes you feel guilty, but you also can never attain the joy of righteousness because you know that you always fall short no matter how hard you try. 
There's religious Christianity. The pendulum back and forth between, well, I really want to do that. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. Okay, back, I'm going to go over here. But okay, I'm going to really try hard, really try hard, really try hard to be good. Failed again. It's a horror. Religious Christianity, folks, is the worst religion to have. It's miserable. Trying to live the Christian ethic in your own strength without the transforming power of grace is miserable. And here's your blanks. This may be the last one. The sad position of the religious Christian. You ready? Attempting to live the Christian life without the freedom that comes from a surrendered heart. Listen, church, attempting to live the Christian life without the freedom that comes from a surrendered heart will always yield a string of failures. And I suspect that this describes some who are sitting here this morning just experiencing that guilt of, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to live like Jesus, I've tried, and I know there's still this sin in my life, and maybe nobody else knows about it, or whatever, or, or maybe, maybe, I look, maybe I'm ahead of everybody, maybe I get an A on the curve, but I still know I'm not like Jesus, and this brings great hope to you. But here's the problem. Christianity, when understood as a moral improvement plan, is an enormous weight, leaving a person with a lifetime of guilt and spiritual failure because no one can be Christ-like by effort. And this is why so many in the church are living with so little joy. Because true joy, the joy of our salvation, will never come until we completely surrender to Christ's work in our life. And that's when, that's when we receive the freedom that can only come through perfect grace from the perfect Savior. Pastor Josiah, come on up. In a moment, I'm gonna open the altars. They're, they're a great place. You've seen it's already been used by some this morning. And this morning's response is for primarily for two kinds of people. First, it's for those who are willing to admit that you're lost and that going to church won't save you and that doing good things won't save you and Cleaning up your act won't save you. Giving money won't save you. None of those things are save, will save you. So are you willing to admit that you'll never be good enough for God? I don't know about you, but that's an easy one for me. To just admit, I'll never be good enough for God. But remember, you gotta be there. You gotta have the diagnosis before you get the cure. If you're not lost, and you don't just admit it and say, I need forgiveness. I'm a sinner. I have no hope. I'm not good enough no matter how, I've, how hard I've tried. If you don't get there, then there's no gospel yet. But if you'll just say, you know what? I don't have it. But I want the grace. I want the forgiveness. So here's the great news. It flows right out of Luke 19.10. I have come to seek and to save those which were lost. Notice the first part. I have come to seek. Jesus says, I've come to seek I've come to seek. We've, we've underemphasized that part of the, of the verse, ready? Unlike the rigid rules of secular and religious self-salvation plans, Jesus didn't say, I came to give you the, I came to give you the Sermon on the Mount and then said, go do it on your own. That would have been, that would have been hopeless for all of us. He seeks, he pursues, and Jesus is relentless. And he's waiting, listen. He's the one waiting, scanning the horizon, yearning for his child to come home. The God of the Bible doesn't stand aloof with a legal code and a set of rules that you have to comply with to save yourself. Praise God, our God 
engages us personally. He's like a loving parent who literally the word says he's counted the hairs on our head. More challenging for some of you than some of the rest of us, but I mean, some of us, that anybody could do that. But, but you know, the, the mom that knows her baby that well, that's the picture of the God who wants you to come home to him. Oh, here's the great news. Jesus is after you. Jesus is pursuing you. And Jesus is relentless. The second kind of person, and I suspect there are a lot here this morning, is the one who may be trying really hard to be good. Maybe you've tried for decades to be a really good Christian and you know what? That sin just still always wins. And it may not even be that impressive. It may just be, you know, I don't really have the joy. I don't have the joy. I'm not really walking with Jesus. I don't have my eyes up looking everywhere saying, I gotta, I gotta tell you what God has done in me through Christ. But you know, you always come up short then the struggle can be a misery. So you're trying really hard not to live like the world, but you haven't experienced the freedom that comes by sheer grace when you're just transformed by the righteousness of Christ. See, maybe you're ready to trade in your self-salvation project for Paul's testimony. Listen to it again. It's no longer I who live because I'm crucified with Christ. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You know what that's called? Freedom. Freedom. So if you're lost, do you want to know the only one true Savior? The only alternative to your self-salvation project where no matter who you join up with, there's lots of rules and there's easy ways to get kicked out. Or you want to join the gospel where it's all on him. Incredible. Or if you're exhausted from trying hard to be a Christian, do you want the incredible relief of laying down the battle and giving Christ complete control so that his righteousness lives through you? Stand with me, church. Everyone stand, can. That's the call this morning. Whether you've been whether you've never been saved or now you realize that your Christianity has been based on working hard to try to be good. Either way, the call is to receive the freedom that comes from surrendering to Christ, surrendering your sin and your good works. Everybody got it? Surrendering your sin and your good works. You're surrendering your bad deeds and your moral striving. Surrendering both your wrongdoing and your attempts to be righteous enough so if you want the freedom that comes from completely surrendering to God's grace and receiving the gift of his righteousness, you want to receive the joy of your salvation on Advent Sunday number three. Then come as Pastor Josiah leads us. Just come, Pastor Josiah.